This is Unfiltered, episode 183 for April 4th, 2016. The so-called Panama Papers now exposing the secret financial dealings of politicians and celebrities, among them Russian President Vladimir Putin, as well as several Middle East leaders found to be hiding their assets in offshore accounts. The revelation now kicking off a worldwide investigation, and Amy Kellogg is live in Rome. So, Amy... What's the nature of this? How big is this scandal? Welcome to Unfiltered Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show that's hopefully watching that news so you don't have to. My name is Chris, and this is a little bit of a compact edition of the show this week, so it's just you and me, no Mr. Chase, but I do have the live chat room over at jblive.tv. Coming up on this week's episode of the Unfiltered Show, you guessed it, we'll be talking about the Panama Papers and maybe covering a few other names on that list than what was in the lead as our chat room so uh, astutely noticed, I guess it would be. Also... The iPhone's been cracked, and now that that sucker's wide open, the FBI's got an open, open, open heyday. Come on in, come on in, everybody. Get it, yeah. Hey, you got an iPhone? You need crack? Bring it over here. Yeah, come on. It's it's open, open house over here at the FBI. Yeah, just bring your iPhones. It's crazy, you guys. Everybody's got an iPhone, and the FBI's cracking it for him. We'll tell you some of the speculation and some of the details and actual hard data that we know, and then later on in the show. Well, towards the end of the show, there is an unbelievable story that will leave you with your jaw, 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 your jaw, your jaw, hanging open as well as a high note. But why don't we start with that cyber stuff since that's usually where we open up. Before we get into the Panama Papers, let's go right into the FBI breaking into that San Bernardino's phone, San Bernardino shooter's phone, that uh, supposedly iPhone that contained a cyber pathogen. Mm. This past week, the FBI, along with some outside help, unlocked an iPhone used by one of the San Bernardino terrorists. Today, we learned the FBI has told local police departments it will help them unlock cell phones in cases where they could provide evidence. As John Blackstone shows us, cracking the code is easier said than done. (laughs) When the FBI launched its search for a way to unlock the San Bernardino terrorist's iPhone, the technicians at a California company called Drive Savers were among those who took up the challenge. You know, I've actually hired Drive Savers. Uh, um, you know, you know that you should safely remove your USB device uh, warning you get, even on Windows systems, where everybody always says, "Oh, it's fine to do it on Windows systems." Well, <laughs> very important thumb drive had some very important project project documentation, and a coworker removed his thumb drive from the computer without properly unmounting it, wiped all of the contents. And they sent us to dry savers. <laughs> That's they my story. Plenty of experience rescuing broken iPhones. How many iPhones a month do you get that you have to try to get information from? You know, we see actually anywhere from 100 to 300 iPhones a month right now. Michael Cobb is DriveSavers' director of engineering. Correct. This is uh, the chip that holds all the data for the iPhone 5C. See what they're kind of doing here is they're not it's they're not explicitly stating it. CBS News, but they're kind of implying. This is how the FBI got in. This is how they did it. You see, you have this chip right here. You remove this chip, and then you can just access this data. They're kind of implying that that's what they did, but they're not really saying that's what the FBI did. In the uh, encrypted form. So you've got that off the phone? Why not just read it? Uh, Well, because encryption is not so simple to 
to retrieve. A company the FBI has not identified found a way around Apple's encryption. The effort at Drivesavers shows what they had to overcome. Try the wrong password too many times, and the phone wipes its memory clean. In the case of the 5C, um, you only have 10 attempts before the iPhone gets erased. To make sure the chip doesn't get erased, is that really a 5C thing? That's been around for a while, right? They kind of imply that this is a new feature. Uh, I haven't been a – I mean, I've been on and off Android users, so maybe I missed it, but I think that's been there for a while. Apple's encryption. The effort at Drivesavers shows what they had to overcome. Try the wrong password too many times, and the phone wipes its memory clean. In the case of the 5C, um, you only have 10 attempts before the iPhone gets erased. To make sure the chip doesn't get erased, they copy it, then put it in a device that simulates an iPhone, but lets them reset the chip's password counter to zero after every 10 attempts. Wouldn't that take forever? It all depends on how fast you can uh, be able to pull the data off, make that copy, do your 10 attempts. Drivesavers hasn't yet defeated Apple's password protection, but over the past 30 years, they have retrieved information from computers that have been burned, broken, and deliberately smashed. This is actually a job that came in this morning that has a lot of corrosion on it. It's spent some time in water. Yes, I don't know how much time, but there's a tremendous amount of corrosion in here. While law enforcement comes looking for evidence, many of Drivesavers' clients are family members trying to recover the messages and photographs of a loved one who has died, leaving behind their phone, but not their password. John Blackstone, CBS News, Novato, California. Nice little native ad packaging there for Drivesavers. And you can imagine how that went down, right? Drivesavers contacted CBS News and says, well, we kind of have an idea of how the FBI might have done this. We could show you, but we can't say it explicitly. And so that package was put together. There's that implication of that firm, that firm the FBI worked with. You know, the one we mentioned last week. Four months after the San Bernardino terrorist attack, the iPhone 5C of one of the shooters remained a critical but inaccessible piece of evidence. An ugly legal battle between the FBI and Apple suddenly ended when the FBI found a different way to get into the iPhone. An Israeli newspaper citing industry sources said the company that did the work was called Celebrite. So that's where it comes from. You caught that, right? So we've been citing, we think it's this company, we think it's this company. Different way to get into the iPhone. An Israeli newspaper citing industry sources said the company that did the work was called Celebrite. This seems like it could be legit. An Israeli newspaper would likely get a leak from an Israeli industry source. So it seems like it could be very likely. But it's not coming from the FBI. That, I think, is the important distinction To get into the iPhone. An Israeli newspaper citing industry sources said the company that did the work was called Celebrite. Celebrite's offices are here behind me in this high-tech park just outside of Tel Aviv. Now, neither the FBI nor Celebrite will comment on the company's involvement, but Celebrite specializes in mobile device data extraction and decryption, phone hacking, and that's exactly what the FBI needed in this case. We reached out to Celebrite and the FBI repeatedly. Celebrite didn't return our calls, and the FBI wouldn't comment about the company. The FBI has said only that they used a, quote, outside company. But the FBI signed a $200,000 contract with Celebrite the same day the FBI announced it had gained access to the content in the shooter's phone. Shares of Celebrite's parent company soared. At a tech conference in 2014, Celebrite's forensics technical director, Yuval Ben Moshe, 
told CNN about their work. We allow uh, law enforcement a very deep and detailed uh, access to a lot of information that, uh, that is on the mobile device, and then it allows them to uh, deduct who did what, when, which is the essence of any investigation when you look at it. Celebrize technology isn't just a hack on an iPhone. Critics say it's a hack on privacy. Ben Moshe says his company has been challenged in court. You've got to make sure that whatever you bring into court can stand there and can stand any cross-examination. There are very, very strict rules and guidelines with most of the countries, uh, and we meet those. We meet those uh, to the best of our knowledge. You know, we think, we think we meet those. I'm not sure I think so. Rules and guidelines with most of the countries, uh, and we meet those. We meet those uh, to the best of our knowledge. To learn more about mobile device security, we meet Michael Shaulov. He is a mobile technology expert at Checkpoint, an Israeli cybersecurity firm. What are the weak points of an iPhone or any other mobile device that you can access the phone through? When you connect a cable to the phone, uh, then you can abuse all kinds of protocols that the iPhone can communicate with the laptops. And then using by, by hijacking or by manipulating those protocols, you can actually uh, unlock the phone. If I give you my iPhone, if I hand it to you, how long will it take you to hack this iPhone? Uh, what is that, Jeremy 4S he has there? It will probably take me faster to hack your phone when it's actually in your hands rather than you give me the phone. It's much easier to <laughs> conduct a social engineering attack, basically to send you something that you will click on and you will install something on your phone rather than uh, I will try to actually guess or break your, your passcode. Yeah, but show me how you do that on the iPhone. I mean, I'm not trying to be like, oh, the iPhone's all this and that, but how do you install something on the iPhone? Now take advantage of a zero day or yet an unpatched flaw in the operating system by exploiting, say, Safari. Sure, I'll buy that. But installing software? Did, did he say installing software? Because that... Much easier to conduct a social engineering attack, basically to send you something that you will click on and you will install something on your phone. See, that that on the iPhone doesn't seem as likely as the attack vector uh, because, as we all know, you can only install apps through the App Store and you're probably not going to have something like that in the App Store. Now, exploit a vulnerability in the operating system? I'll give you that to conduct a social engineering attack, basically to send you something that you will click on and you will install something on your phone rather than uh, I will try to actually guess or break your, your passcode. This is the flip side of the startup nation. Innovation used to build security, now used to exploit vulnerabilities. Is Celebrate the company behind the U.S. government's iPhone hack? They will not say. But notably, the company that signed the FBI contract and was enthusiastically touting its technology not long ago has now gone silent. Orrin Lieberman, CNN, Tel Aviv. And we covered last week that the FBI claims they've purchased that technology. They own that technology. And now that they have that technology in-house, they're telling all kinds of different uh, law enforcement agencies, not just federal ones, Come on in. We'll help you unlock it. Open house. Local prosecutors in Arkansas are about to get a hacking hand from the FBI and unlocking the iPhone and iPod of two alleged teenage killers. RT's Manila Chan has the story. Just days ago, you might remember that the FBI was in a heated face-off with Apple over trying to get a federal court to compel the tech giant to crack the iPhone of Syed Farouk, one of the San Bernardino shooters. The FBI spent months on Capitol Hill and put Director James Comey in front of press, 
pleading their case to the public, which, if successful, would have set legal precedents for other tech firms in future court cases. So earlier this week, I was looking back at the Unfilter archive, um, thinking, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of in this show is we are creating a people's history, and that's one of the reasons why we're crowdfunded. And one of the things that happens is you can see the way the federal government works in a really sort of methodical, unraveling, story arc almost way. We think of Director Comey there. I'll go back. Uh, She shows him right there, sitting there testifying. We think of him testifying against the iPhone as this is something that's happened over the last few months, but I tracked it back. He has been pushing for different – he has been raising the case publicly like this against encryption, encrypted apps, and warrant-free zones since December. Heavy. Before – now, interestingly enough, I believe is they started working with Apple around January. But they have been pushing this for a long time in different forms and different iterations, going with different messages, trying different tacks. And looking back through the different episodes, we have weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks now that if you watched it back from that, you would see how their tact has changed and evolved as, they, as they've gone on. And we now, starting in December... Starting in December, this man, the director of the FBI, James Comey, was sitting there saying, we have no way to access these iPhones. We are completely helpless. This is an absolute and total disaster. And now, now it's open house, everybody. Come on in. Come on in. It's open house. It's time to get in and get to that iPhone data. The FBI spent months on Capitol Hill and put director James Comey in front of press, pleading their case to the public, which, if successful, would have set legal precedents for other tech firms in future court cases. So when the feds suddenly dropped their case against Apple and announced that they were successful in accessing Farouk's iPhone, it raised a few eyebrows. And last night, the Federal Bureau of Investigations did it again by agreeing to help the district attorney's office in Arkansas crack the iPhone and iPod of two teenage boys accused of murdering the grandparents of one of the boys. 18-year-old Hunter Drexler and 15-year-old Justin Stanton are accused of killing Stanton's grandparents, but have pled not guilty to charges of capital murder and aggravated robbery, among a host of other charges. Today, critics of this multi-agency cooperation say this flies in the face of the very case the FBI spent months trying to convince the country of. That is, their helplessness and necessity for Apple to take part in unlocking an iPhone that they say may contain evidence and clues to the deadly rampage. Now, they amp it up with a lot more drama, a lot more attitude, a lot more, oh, this is something that is really something that you can feel, something that's going to tug on the heartstrings. It's something impactful. This heartfelt, urgent text was the last one Barbara Mills ever received from her daughter, Brittany. It was April 24th of last year. She said, I have you and I'm grateful. You know that I love you so much. And I don't know where I would be without you. Hours later, at half past ten at night, someone knocked at Brittany's apartment in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and killed her. You got it. So this daughter, this grateful daughter, sends this wonderful text message to her mom via her iPhone. It's like, has this really happened? And why? Police believe Brittany willingly opened the door. Another tenant overheard a man ask Brittany to borrow her car. So somebody comes along. Uh, yeah, excuse me, miss. Can I borrow your car? You know, she willingly opened her door probably because he knocked on her door, right? I mean, this is probably what happened, I would imagine, is he comes and knocks on her door, says, I would like to borrow your car, and she says no, and then there's an altercation. Probably doesn't know who this person is. 
and within seconds uh, she was shot multiple times. The shooter left without stealing her car or taking anything from her apartment. Hiller Moore is the district attorney for Baton Rouge. Was there anybody else who overheard anything? No other witnesses. Nothing. Were there any fingerprints? Nothing. Any footprints? Nothing. No eyewitnesses? Nothing. Just that iPhone. So there's nothing there to tell you who might have done this? Correct. Almost immediately after the shooting, the story became more than just a local tragedy. When investigators here at the apartment noticed that right inside the front door on a living room table, next to her keys and her purse, was her cell phone. And it was an iPhone. Eight months earlier, in September 2014, Apple had changed the iPhone's operating system. Did you see his face? <laughs> Let's go back. The living room table next to her keys and her purse was her cell phone. And it was an iPhone. He's like, shit. He got it. You know, it's like... Eight months earlier, in September 2014, Apple had changed the iPhone's operating system, adding a new layer of encryption that made it impossible, Apple claimed, for law enforcement or the company itself to unlock anyone's iPhone without knowing the owner's personal passcode. I don't know if Apple really so much claimed that to law enforcement as that's what the headlines they were showing there said. In addition, a new security feature would erase all the iPhone's data if an incorrect passcode was tried 10 times. Is that new? Was that added in iOS 8? Is that true? With a warrant, Baton Rouge police then obtained from Brittany's cellular carrier a list of who she called and texted. But they could not get the contents of those messages or read anything she had stored on her phone. So metadata shows that she had called and texted. Let's play that part again. I think that's pretty important. Data if an incorrect passcode was tried 10 times. With a warrant, Baton Rouge police then obtained from Brittany's cellular carrier a list of who she called and texted. But they could not get the contents of those messages. So it doesn't say, you would think if the metadata showed that she had recently texted a, a new number or a stranger or just something like that, don't you think they would say that? Or read anything she had stored on her phone, including a diary that Brittany's mother says she kept on the phone. Well, let's say she was having trouble with somebody. It could lead us to that some person, somebody, it could tell us exactly what the problems were about Almost a year later, the prosecutor has not charged anyone with the murder. Which would be pretty typical in a case like this, I would think. Do you think the answer to who did it is on your daughter's phone? Oh, yes. You think it's there? I think what's in that phone can lead them straight to the person. Hmm. When she died, died, the passcode died with her. Now, this guy, (laughs) it's funny, of course, out of all of the people, all of the experts that they could have sit down, (laughs) they pick one of the most anti-private privacy, one of the most pro-get-into-your-phone guys out there right now. If James Comey has a best friend, it is this guy. Cyrus Vance is also a district attorney, not in Louisiana, but in New York, and he knows Brittany's case well. It's one of many cases around this country that presents similar facts. More than one out of four of the... Vance, who testified last month before a congressional hearing on encryption... I.e., we couldn't find anyone more biased... ...has become a leading voice for local law enforcement. And it's local law enforcement, not national, which handles 95% of all criminal investigations in the United States. Prosecutors in Houston have been locked out of more than 100 iPhones last year... 46 in Connecticut, 36 in Chicago since January. Here's what I don't understand, and I would love to know the numbers. So, uh, actually, he gave us the numbers of the iPhones. For local law enforcement. 
and it's local law enforcement, not national, <laughs> yeah. which handles 95% of all criminal investigations. Okay. So there's our first number. 95% of uh, criminal investigations are local. In the United States. Okay. Prosecutors in Houston have been locked out of more than 100 iPhones last year, 46 in Connecticut, 36 in Chicago since January. His own and 36. All right. So 146 and 36. These are our numbers. Not we're not talking uh, 146, 100 in Houston, 46 in Connecticut uh, and 36. I I already forgot what he said because it doesn't matter. What matters is if you think about how long personal computers have been around and access to drive encryption or built in encryption in uh, in NTFS since NTFS five and above. um. There has got to be thousands of PCs that law enforcement can't get access to. There's got to be literally thousands of them that come in. Laptops, desktop towers. This must be a massive problem. But all of a sudden now phones can do the same thing that personal computers have been doing for decades? For local law enforcement. And it's local law enforcement, not national, which handles 95% of all criminal investigations in the United States. Prosecutors in Houston have been locked out of more than 100 iPhones last year, 46 in Connecticut, 36 in Chicago since January. His own crime lab in Manhattan, one of the largest in the country, currently has 215 iPhones he believes contain evidence blocked by Apple's encryption. Now, is their belief as strong as what they just talked about uh, for that last one. Now, this one is like there is obviously – and I'm not going to deny this. There are legitimate cases. They, of course, highlight the one legitimate case that they can think of here where somebody happened to be videoing when somebody walked in and did, a little, did up some shooting, uh, which I can't dispute that. That is a reasonable thing that's going to happen from time to time, just like there are security cameras from time to time that have access to very important information. But the bias of the people they bring in to cover it are, 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 is shaping the debate in a way that's extremely unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. And that clip goes on much longer, too, if you are curious about that and you want to follow more about it. So now we are in uh, – and, and there's probably just more to cover on this as this is sort of a compact episode. But now we are in a place where the FBI is just, come on in, open house. Come on in. Just unlock, we'll unlock your phone. We'll get the data off there. And I, I have read iPhone 6s, too. We're not just talking iPhone 5Cs. Uh, so uh, perhaps it depends on the level of encryption. I'm sure, this, I'm sure there's a lot of different things. Uh, but uh, that is a particular interesting thing. Also, <clears throat> one other thing. Well, I guess I could just play a moment of this for you. This isn't, uh, this isn't a great, great clip. But there is so, something really interesting right off the top of this clip that maybe we could discuss. First, I want to talk to you about this company that, that was been identified as the, the way that Apple got into this, or so the way the FBI got into this yeah. phone. This is on Bloomberg, Bloomberg Business Television. Uh, Celebrite, this Israeli company. Talk to me about how this device works. And notice he said device. And, and, and the fact that, the very fact that it is a device, not just a software and so on. Yeah, I, I don't think we will find out for a while. I think the- That's actually all you really need to know is uh, it, some people are saying it's an actual device. Some people are saying it's a service. Um, a device would imply reading the chip in my estimation, right? Don't you think? Uh so uh, Arch Linux Russian says, devil's advocate, Chris, perhaps it's all right to say that all data or chip flash storage uh, should be able to chipped off and accessed and that not one could brute force or something. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, to me, my estimation is that this is no more of a threat than the PCs have been. And there's got to be way more PCs right now they deal with that have drive encryption because it's been available for in many different ways from just simple uh, BitLocker down to TrueCrypt and others. There has been methodologies that elude law enforcement. Elude? Elude? You know what else eludes? I saw eludes. 
I'm sorry, I asked. <laughs> I think I meant to ask. Welcome back. German authorities are on alert following ISIS's claim uh, and their call to arms for extremist Muslims there to carry out a Brussels-style attack. This comes as Belgian police claim there are dozens of ISIS sympathizers working at Brussels airport. Working at the airport? Well, what about the U.S.? Joining us now is Major General Matthew C. Horner, Distinguished Chair of Military Theory, Marine Corps University, and our friend Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Uh, Nice to see you again, sir, this morning. What did you make of this claim out of the Brussels airport? Well, it's very, very disturbing, but it shouldn't surprise you know, us. So uh, no. this is what the jihadis are going to want to do. We have reports Soft in targets. the United States that more than 70 there people working for TSA 70 people were somehow connected to the terrorism watch list. What? So, How do people on the terrorism watch list get even hired by the TSA? This isn't just a, a problem in Europe. It's one here. If you read the jihadi <laughs> magazines like Inspire... <laughs> Fox News alert, we will find a way to make any news report about anyone around the world somehow about us in the United States. We are that narcissistic. Go America! The Brussels airport is still closed today for 10 days after ISIS led terror attacks. 10 days post those attacks still closed. But the airport's head says some flights may resume tomorrow, Sunday. The Belgian police union says more attacks could be on the way, citing a letter stating as many as 50 ISIS supporters work at the Brussels airports in what they call low-level jobs. Cleaners, baggage handlers, those kind of people. But they still have unchecked access to aircraft. And it's a problem U.S. security officials say they're seeing right here in the United States as well. Although some form of screening is conducted on cargo, catering supplies, check baggage, and of course passengers, there are other airport employees who have access to sterile areas of the airport who are not who are subjected to only criminal history record checks and security threat assessments. You see how they just take something <clears throat> that is literally a threat in Germany, which I'm not sure if uh, if you go to you just you could go to maps.bing.com. I think that's a URL. I know you can go to maps.google.com, and I would just uh, if you're a United if you're a U.S. citizen uh, or, you know, a Canadian, um, if you're just over here on this uh, in this continent, I would invite you to do like one of those like, uh, you know, direction searches from your house to Germany or, or hell, maybe the airport. Just, you know, you know, cut out the middleman and just see how many miles that is. And then and then ask yourself, why is Fox News making it about threats in the U.S. to scare all of us? And you think maybe that's why when President Obama comes out and says, you know, part of the problem is, uh, you know, uh, it's, I, 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 you guys, I, 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 the way you cover ISIS is it's no good. It's the first no good. family's now officially on vacation. The president has already played some golf and done some hiking. But, but you know, if Obama can take a spring break, can't your unfiltered show take a spring break, right, guys? I mean, after all... Obama's doing it. Some golf and done some hiking. But before he left, he did this wide-ranging interview with National Public Radio, especially on the subject of ISIS. And despite all the criticism that's been out there during this political season, uh, even some coming from his own party, despite polls showing many Americans do not agree with current ISIS strategy, the president again defended it and at length. And when asked why so many might be dissatisfied with it, uh, he cited not only ISIS's own propaganda machine, but the media saying that when people turn on their TVs, he's not surprised that they become concerned. Listen. Are you suggesting that the media are being played in a sense here? Look, uh, the the media uh, is pursuing ratings. This is a legitimate news story. Uh, I think that 
uh, you know, it's up to the media to make a determination about how they want to cover things. Now, that is actually an interesting statement in light of the Fox News clips that I just played for you, where it's obviously they're taking something uh, that isn't really a threat to U.S. citizens and still trying to scare you. About how they want to cover things. There is no doubt that the actions of ISIL are designed to amplify uh, their power. You know, uh, if they didn't want to amplify the message of ISIL, then maybe they shouldn't be making videos like Welcome to ISIS Land. Do you remember that video? The uh, video made by the State Department that was full of propaganda? Really something. Now, of course, the other reason maybe the media is covering it so much is because legitimately, there's a lot going on. And maybe part of the problem is Putin. Perhaps something was lost in the translation, but recently Russian President Vladimir Putin seemed to indicate he was beginning a major withdrawal of his forces from Syria. We covered that recently and I was like, hmm, okay, well let's keep watching this particular story because you never know. National Security Correspondent Jennifer Griffin at the Pentagon tonight says Putin is actually bringing in more firepower. When a Russian drone flew over Syria recording this video after Russian warplanes helped Assad's forces retake Palmyra from ISIS earlier this week, some Syria observers were surprised. They thought the Russians had pulled out of Syria. That's what Russian President Vladimir Putin promised last month. I order the Ministry of Defense as of tomorrow to start the pullout of the main part of our military grouping from the Syrian Arab Republic. Not so, according to the Pentagon. Russia has kept all of its 18 attack helicopters, sending in more advanced helicopters like these MI-28 Havoc. And we know, because we got all our stuff over there. The Russians, you know, they are bringing some much, a lot of their more advanced equipment uh, to the battlefield. Um, helicopters, armored vehicles, uh, and fixed-wing aircraft as well. The U.S. military says none of the Russian tanks, artillery, or missile systems have been pulled out, nor a significant number of Russian troops. They still retain significant uh, capability in Syria. The Russians are now bombing the town of Sukhna between Palmyra and Raqqa, oh. the ISIS capital. Nobody's going to get to Raqqa anytime soon, frankly. Neither the Russians nor uh, the SDF. The U.S. backed Syrian Democratic Forces. Even more important than retaking Raqqa, the Pentagon and White House are focusing on killing the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. You know. I want him to know that we are hunting him. Uh, wow. And, and we will find him. Uh, just like we found his mentor, Zarqawi, and killed him. The Pentagon says wow. it's restarted a training program for the so-called moderate Syrian rebels, a program that cost $500 million and produced a handful of trained rebels before being halted last fall. What we did the first time was try to pull full units off the line and cycle them through training. We, we realized that didn't work. This time they won't require that the rebels promise not to fight the Assad regime. That oh. vetting proved difficult. The Pentagon <laughs> has started training dozens of these Syrians. Okay, okay. That's, hold on, hold on. Isn't that a big deal? Work. This time they won't require that the rebels promise not to fight the Assad regime. <laughs> that vetting proved difficult. The Pentagon has started training dozens of these Syrians, using them to better call in airstrikes, Brett. Jennifer Griffin live at the Pentagon. Jennifer, thank you. So rebels we are financing and training on the ground will be calling in airstrikes from the U.S. military. 
sounds like a good idea to me. Don't see what could go wrong with that. Now, I can't say where your tax dollars are going, but I can say thank you to everybody at patreon.com slash unfilter who are sending some of their dollars towards our show. Now, uh, we are crossing over into April, and by the 5th or 6th, I think Chase knows, but he's not here today. We will find out if the card's cleared. Now, last week, if you are a patron or recently have become a patron or if you become one today... You will see a video I posted that talks about some of the little give a little bit of a hint, I suppose. Uh, and we have a thread over there about some domain names, some really great ones. And I think I'm going to make an executive decision. There's a, I'm taking everybody's input, though. So that thread is still open if you want to get over there. And then next week, if all goes as planned, we will uh, have a revealing of the next phase of the unfilter program. program, program, program. Actually, what it really will be is something specifically to enhance our uh, patron experience. Now, uh, we've altered and enhanced the show recently in other ways, and I'll get to more of that in the overtime segment. But before I go today, uh, I normally would take this moment to thank our patrons, and I really am thankful for our patrons. But I did want to take a moment and thank producer Matt. He really had to haul this week to get a bunch of really great clips uh, to get us to have, an, to have another show by Monday. I mean, w- when we put a show out on Wednesday, he and I are working like crazy to get that show put together. And so to have a whole other show ready by Monday is really a uh, superhero level effort. And especially when something like the Panama Papers is breaking and there's existing stories we're still tracking, it's a real heck of a job. And uh, he, he, he really did the lion's share of the clips in this week's episode. So a special thank you to uh, producer Matt uh, and uh, I definitely uh, had to put in the time itself, myself. Uh, I, I ended up crashing at the studio last night in order to make this happen because today I also recorded two Coda radios. <laughs> um, and this is the third show of the day. And to put you know all of that together and still be able to record two Coda radios. And I had a doctor's appointment at 8 a.m. Uh, it was really – it was pretty crazy. Uh, and I tell you all of this just to tell you how hard we work for our patrons. And uh, if later on this month, if we have a if we if we miss a week or two, uh, because uh, because uh, hopefully not two, uh, because of Linux Fest and people coming in and flying around and studio will literally be getting torn apart at moments and things like that, I want you to know it is not because of a lack of effort on our part. Uh, we have foregone sleep. We have foregone uh, going home after the Linux Action Show. Uh, I stayed here to make this happen and. Uh, it, and producer Matt worked uh, crazy overtime as well. And when we, whenever we can, we have a product that we think is the best we possibly could do for those 454 people who support the Unfilter Show. Thank you to all of you. And the more of you, the more the merrier because that is nothing like a vote of confidence than people uh, becoming a patron and saying thank you and saying I've gotten some value. We'll also thank and, and cover some more of our patrons in the overtime segment. But uh, I just wanted to mention this is a listener-supported show. It's a people's history show. And if you look back through the catalog and look at things like the Snowden leaks um, or the iPhone encryption case most recently or today, the Panama Papers, I think you will find it's a very interesting story arc that these episodes cover. And when you become a patron, you get access to the clips, a lot of the source code that makes up the show where there's a lot of additional stuff. Okay, so the Panama Papers. Well, you probably have gotten a sense of what it at least if at least if you haven't heard it already, you've got a sense from our intro. This is going to fill in some of the edges for you. And USA Today reports on the massive document leak allegedly showing how world leaders and the mega rich 
hide billions of dollars. The so-called Panama Papers point to people with ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin and other global leaders. The stunning revelations, rather, are contained in an estimated 11.5 million documents that was leaked from a Panama-based law firm. They show how the ultra-wealthy and powerful create shell companies. Don Daler is here with a leak nearly 10 times larger than Edward Snowden's. Don, good morning. Good oh. morning. It's not illegal to have an offshore company. but Ten times, ten times the size of Edward Snowden's. Uh, though that's a real common um, a meme, I guess you would say, uh, in, the, uh, in the narrative right now. And I think the, uh, the, uh, the number comes from the, the number of documents, obviously. That's why it's 11-something million documents. So it's the largest, largest league ever, larger than Snowden. But I, I don't know if you would argue the scope of what it covers. I suppose so. But at the end of the day, it's sort of revealing something, didn't we all already suspect? Snowden's. Don, good morning. Good morning. It's not illegal to have an offshore company, but one uh, purpose one. Uh, of a so-called shell company is that the money put in it can't be traced to its owner. I hope. The practice uh-huh. allows people to hold cash and move cash under a corporate name without international law enforcement or tax authorities knowing who it belongs to. An anonymous source provided nearly 40 years' worth of documents... An anonymous source, huh? Hmm. ...from a law firm in Panama named Mossack Fonseca, which helps establish offshore bank accounts for the world's wealthiest people. All right, I want to make it clear right here. We're not talking about the bank accounts being in Panama. The law firm was in Panama. People were working in Panama with this law firm because this is their gig. They, they, they hook this up, and wherever you want to stash it, wherever you want to establish your company or stash your money... They'll make, the, they'll make it all happen for you. They're going to help you manage that. They're going to set up the legal stuff for you. But they're not putting the money in Panama. That's not where the money's at. The 2.6 terabytes of data handed over to journalists. I think it's amazing that they're even telling you that. 2.6 terabytes. I would bet you, and I'm, I'm not trying to be rude, I would bet you there's a good chance no one in the production of this show, on the, on the production level, knows what a terabyte is. I'm not trying to be rude. I just that that would be my guess. I would also bet that the vast, vast majority of people watching this have no idea what a terabyte is. I would bet you the man reading this has no idea what a terabyte is. Yet, that's all over the place. It's a terabyte. It's a terabyte. It's a terabyte. The 2.6 terabytes of data handed over to journalists reportedly contains approximately 11.5 million documents, including nearly 5 million internal emails providing a window into some 214,000 companies. This really told us something about how the offshore financial system works and and especially about who are the kinds of people who are using it. Michael Hudson is one of hundreds of journalists who researched the documents in what's likely the biggest leak of inside information in history. The same system that that politicians and the mega wealthy and billionaires are using to move money and do transactions is also being used by criminals, Ponzi schemers, drug kingpins. You can hear the way he's nonchalantly talking about this. He's talking about this nonchalantly because this is something we all already know. And the mega wealthy and billionaires are using to move money and do transactions is also being used by criminals, Ponzi schemers, drug kingpins, uh, you name it, to uh, hide their, their corrupt businesses. Among the 12 current or former heads of state named in the investigations, the presidents of Ukraine and Argentina, and the king of Saudi Arabia. Wow. That, I mean, that's like, that's like the tip of the iceberg, right? But wow, the president of Ukraine, and the money has been shown to be funding the, the Syrian rebels, the Syrian army, like the money's going all over the place. And 
oh, look at that, the king of Saudi Arabia snaps. And of course, like I said, tip of the iceberg. And while he is not named directly, the documents show allies to Russian President Vladimir Putin secretly shuffled as much as $2 billion through banks and shadow companies. Allies would be, I guess, I guess when CBS like has a friend that they've had for the, like since college that like you know maybe is the godfather of their daughter and they've seen they hang out a lot that's an ally in CBS terms that's an, that's what you call an ally some people call them close friends close friends is what human beings call them but CBS calls them allies what can you tell me about a company called Vintris the prime minister of Iceland who rose to prominence after the country's financial crisis walked out of an interview last month when he was questioned about his ownership of a shell company that held nearly four million dollars in bonds in the three major Icelandic banks. And this marked the moment I have been tracking this story. It's funny. So producer Matt and I were talking about this offline in a discussion thread and uh, they, I had been tracking this before it was called the Panama Papers because that was something that came out when – and I have links to all of this in the show notes – when the International Journalist Group and The Guardian all published their major reports. But there have been rumors now for a solid month that there has been a $2 billion tie to Putin. And then, and, then, and then when this happened, I really started tracking this. And so I think this is an important moment for you to watch uh, because this is really what cued this um, the story off to begin with. And now it is finally – it's finally bursted out into the public. And now all of a sudden we're – it's funny. Now we see it. It's branded, right? It's, it's so Putin-focused, even though for a month, for a month, it's been like sort of brewing under the scenes. The country's financial crisis walked out of an interview last month when he was questioned about his ownership of a shell company that held nearly $4 million in bonds in the three major Icelandic banks. Secrecy is a product that's bought and sold, and it costs money. The more secrecy you want, the more you pay. Masek Fonseca called the leak a crime and stressed to Agence France Press that we have no responsibility in how these companies were used. They say they're like a car factory. You can't blame the car factory if uh, a car is used to rob a bank. I would say it's more like a brothel. Masak Fonseca told the Guardian newspaper the parties in many of the circumstances cited are not and have never been their clients. They also said they do not foster or promote unlawful acts. There are currently no Americans named in the leaked documents, but it's unlikely that that'll last. So what happens next? Well, 11 and a half million documents yeah. takes a long time to go through. That's why there are some names that will be revealed that have not been revealed yet, because there are journalists pouring over this documentation even as we speak. Yeah, and how many people are quaking in their boots going, boy, I hope my name doesn't yeah. show up on Cats one of well, those 11 million. I'll tell you who's quaking in their boots is that Iceland uh, president or politician. Uh, woo! That's going to be an interesting story that hopefully we'll have more on next week. Uh, but there was, of course, a rather large focus. A vast number of confidential documents have... And that focus was on Putin. ...been leaked. And, of course, RT has to somehow... Well, they have to somehow cover the story, and they have to somehow respond to the fact that, well, it's all about Putin. A vast number of confidential documents have been leaked, Awkward. allegedly showing how the world's rich and powerful hide their money. More than 11 million files were obtained from a Panama-based offshore law firm that's been operating for nearly 40 years. 72 current and former heads of states are... Now, that's where they would have said Putin. Right there. 
But they didn't. <laughs> they say 17. That's where everybody's been saying Putin, but not RT. Now, keep, keep watching because uh, you have to watch this guy that he has there to talk about it and the kind of smirk he gets on his face soon. 72 current and former heads of states are among more than 100 politicians from 50 different mm-hmm. countries named in the files. Mm-hmm. Well, to discuss this further, I'm now joined in the studio by RT's William Whiteman. Now, William has to talk about the fact that uh, Putin's in the report, and so this is his spin and watch his smirk. Uh, William, the Panama Papers, as they're known, they're commonly now become known as the WikiLeaks of the mega-rich. That's what I've seen in some headlines. Yeah. Uh, revealing alleged money stashes. And I'm just looking at some of the lists here. State leaders, sports stars, business people here from around the globe. But it seems that for many media outlets, the leaks start and finish with one man. Well, yeah, I mean, that, and that man is uh, Vladimir Putin, it would appear. Um, uh, he's, uh, he's certainly the, the centre of attention. I mean, you've got his picture everywhere on, on, on newspaper articles and also um, uh, uh, web links all over Facebook and stuff like that, um, alongside um, uh, the headlines as well. Obviously, this all started um, from the website of the, uh, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Now, that's an interesting, this is an interesting uh, direction. So the anonymous leaker... Uh, worked with them. Now, they then distributed to a bunch of different uh, journalistic outlets, uh, including like the Times of India and others, really interesting details there. If you're an unfiltered supporter, go into the Panama section of our, of our sink and watch the clip on how they worked with the media to distribute this story. This, this organization worked uh, – they're a very interesting organization. I did some reading into them and they worked very carefully, had these journalists sign agreements. They distributed documents as they processed them before – as they vetted them and then they had to go into negotiations about the aspects of who was going to cover what. This all started um, from the websites of the, uh, the International Consortium of uh, Investigative Journalists. Uh, which broke the news, and right after the main headline, uh, you have uh, this um, offshore network uh, tied to Putin. Yes, so you have that in the headlines, but in the actual documents, there's no sign of Vladimir Putin's name. Well, no, I mean, the, uh, the documents itself, the way that they're organised, is you have um, the, 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 a main group, which consists of um, uh, p- political figures who were directly associated, um, implicated mm-hmm. in, the, um, in the leak. Um, so these include the Argentinian president, uh, Mauricio Marci, um, uh, Ukraine's Petro Poroshenko, and also the, uh, the prime minister of uh, Iceland and the king of Saudi Arabia. And then the, uh, the second group is uh, where you have people who... Um, or political figures who are associated um, with the leak um, by their um, affiliates. So in this case, we have um, family members and uh, friends. And so this is where we find... That's how Assad and Putin get in the list, by the way. ...of Putin. He's in here. So, yeah, his, his name isn't mm. directly mentioned in it. Instead, it's his associates. Uh, but this hasn't stopped uh, one German newspaper, uh, which uh, published a leak from uh, dedicating... So we'll stop there, because they go on. The clip goes on much further, if you're curious about RT's take on that. But, uh, you know, you guys are bringing up great points in the chat room. I told you to go get the clip, but I almost wonder if I have it right here. You know, I'll play a moment of this for you. So uh, this interview is a little long, but uh, she talks about some interesting things sort of right off the top. This is from uh, the uh, uh, India Express's eight-month-long investigation. So she was working on this project for eight months. Others have been working on it for longer before they got access. What you're going to see in the paper over the next few days is actually uh, the work of almost eight months uh, by a special team. And it all began uh, in July, which was barely four months after the Indian Express finished the HSBC series. And then came a message from them in early July saying, new ICIJ project. Them being that international journal- journalist 
uh, consortium or whatever it is. I have links to them in the show notes. So we spoke to them on Skype and uh, did get the impression that it's probably the most ambitious journalism collaborative project ever. I think that's an interesting line right there, the most ambitious collaborative journalistic project ever. Hmm. And uh, when I learned that the subject was uh, offshore companies, of course, we were interested. We signed the agreement and uh, immediately set up a team in the office. The agreement. The first thing was to get onto what the ICIJ called the forum, which is an interactive uh, uh, community sheet where all the people working on the project. So they're using Tor, it looks like. I can't quite tell, but it, this is, a, I can see a shot of a Chrome browser, HTTPS colon slash slash 4R slash HCM200V. It's like a garble goop. So I, uh, it looks like uh, they, had, they had set up an online collaboration space for the different journalists to work together. It's some sort of collaborative web application that's hidden online. Uh, could share ideas and news breaks and data. And uh, the project, of course, is called Prometheus because of the expanse and uh, the voluminous data that we were dealing with. And then came the search engine. The problem was that the search engine was uh, fed by the ICIJ in spurts. And as the uh, team started working... if As they, as they fed a docs... You were looking for a particular uh, entity or you were... By entity, I mean uh, an offshore company, or you were looking for a client or a beneficiary owner of that entity, and you had a batch of documents. Uh, Those documents would get expanded a month later into maybe several thousand more or million more. They were just coming in as they were processing them. So the clip goes on. There's other several clips in there, too, that I think are very fascinating about the process. Now, uh, Putin's got a story, and he's sticking to it. You know that anonymous leaker? He says that might be the CIA. Money evade their taxes and dodge sanctions. This is ABC. Russian President Vladimir Putin, he's not named specifically in these documents, but they do reveal a telltale trail of secret offshore loans and deals set up by his closest inner circle and worth $2 billion. The Kremlin's That's the already big blasting these leaks. They're calling it a CIA plot what? and an attack on Russia. But other world leaders, the king of Saudi Arabia, Syrian president Bashar al-Assad, the president of Ukraine, the prime minister of Iceland, all caught up in this skullduggery. And there's no question that this scandal is just beginning. Huh. George- well, there you go. I agree on that point. There is no question this scandal is just beginning. Uh, and your compact edition of your Unfiltered show is just the tip of the iceberg coverage of this. We just started following this uh, from the mainstream media's uh, branded perspective. I, it is really fascinating to have been following this story now for a while, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden to see it have a name and a brand. Like, uh, I don't know. I, because, I've been, because I've been looking into it from all these different angles and researching these different things, trying to get to what this story is that people have been working on, to then, boom, see it revealed with a big old name. It's just... It, it it surprised me, and it was a really kind of a sort of an interesting experience uh, in production of this show. I want to move right along, though. We have so many things left to cover in the overtime, but your compact edition of the Unfilter show, well, it is getting towards the end, but we couldn't leave without a local high note. Now, as you know, Washington State, one of the first to legalize. Uh, 
But last week, I'm del- um, this guy says, last week we had, I'm queuing him up, last week we covered how the uh, black market has been decreased by quite a bit. This week now, the story is the black market's on fire because of recreational weed. Here he is. He's back. Um, um, the legalization go. has changed the field. Despite marijuana being legal in both Washington and Oregon, the black market pot business is currently booming. When Washington and Oregon voters legalized recreational marijuana, it opened a brand new era for drug enforcement here in the Northwest. As Corey Marshall shows us, it's bringing on a few unintended and rather dicey side effects. From the outside, it looks like a well-maintained single-family home. Inside, investigators say this Salmon Creek house was a distribution hub for illegal marijuana. Drug detectives say these alleged drug traffickers are renting homes in inconspicuous suburban neighborhoods. It's part of a shift, they say, in the black market marijuana business in both Oregon and Washington. The black market for marijuana has never gone away. In fact, it's been bolstered by the legality because there's so much more product available. So it's been bolstered by the legality. Uh, and I would imagine, and then because there's so much product available. Now, that doesn't really make sense. But what does make sense to me is if you don't issue enough licenses and there's still a lot of demand, uh, and now people uh, don't get uh, um, arrested for getting, t- for getting caught with a little bit of pot, um, then there's more people buying than ever. And if there's certain cities, like the one the uh, studio is in, that don't allow it in their, in their jurisdiction then those people will probably buy from either the next city over or a black market. So in some ways, what we've done here in the Washington state is we have increased demand in the public, but yet artificially limited supply. What do you think's going to happen? That, experts say, combined with comparatively lax laws and a big profit potential, the reward more than ever outweighs the risk. Investigators say the black market marijuana trade hurts the state economies in two ways. First, you have the potential tax revenue lost when drugs are distributed out of state. Now, remember, we covered last week how much money they're making. So they're not hurting for money from tax revenue on the weed. There's also, though, the damage done to legal dispensaries. Like buying counterfeit shoes or pirated DVDs or some products out of the back of a car. That's an interesting argument. Think of the mom and pop pot shop. You're hurting them when you go buy from the black market. That you aren't buying from a legitimate business. You're hurting the people who worked very hard to legalize this. Granted, I'm walking the fine line. Take this case in Vancouver, for example. This YouTube clip posted by our news partners at the Columbian shows a police interview with Adam Alexander. Alexander ran Grow Systems Northwest. The problem? Investigators say he didn't have a license to grow, manufacture, or distribute retail marijuana and wasn't in the process of applying. The risk that we're seeing on this side is with the cash and the volumes of marijuana. Financial investigator for the Clark Vancouver Regional Drug Task Force, John Luciano, was in the room for that interview. Investigators say the money earned in the illegal marijuana trade goes to purchase more serious drugs, illegal firearms, and can go towards sex trafficking. I would like to see some proof of that specifically. Previously, there wasn't a lot of... uh, gun violence, uh, a lot of threats of murder in the marijuana trade with the exception of the marijuana that was coming up from Mexico. This has to be backed up with some serious data. Now we're seeing that kind of threats here in our own state. Which brings us back to that Salmon Creek neighborhood where officers seized hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and illegal marijuana. In a case, investigators say that started as a murder threat. 
And here's another concern. Investigators say if armed robbers are willing to hold up a convenience store for $100 or so, they then imagine what they might do to a liquor store. They are willing to rob these illegal marijuana operations. Oh. Well, quite a bizarre scene in front of the White House this afternoon. Hundreds of pro-marijuana protesters brought a 50-foot inflatable joint to the White House today, all to protest current laws. They say the president should remove marijuana from the list of controlled substances. President Obama says pot advocates should lobby Congress no, to pass no, no, a bill. No, 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 no. Not my problem. No, no, no. Don't talk to me. Hey. hey, don't talk to me. You got to go talk to Congress. All right. So uh, as I wrap up the uh, unfiltered show here, 183 gets closer and closer to an end. I can only imagine what 184 is going to cover when we come back. Uh, but I am going into a spring break with the kiddos, my first, taking the kids out on a road trip um, for spring break. And this story, as a father, kind of got my attention, and I wanted to share it with you. A big oops by the CIA. Uh-huh. Officials say agents accidentally left explosive material on a Virginia school bus. What? A bus that actually drove children around with that material still hidden on board. What? National correspondent Suzanne Malvo has more on how this happened and what the CIA has to say about it. Suzanne? CIA? Pam, it's pretty alarming. You can imagine how the parents of those kids who were riding on that bus reacted. They were Uh absolutely shocked. Now, these students had been riding this bus for two days before this explosive training material had actually been found. So here's how it happened. This is according to Loudoun County school officials and the CIA. Last week, the students were on spring break. The CIA was using the bus to train its canine units what? who were trying to figure out how to detect these explosive materials. Those involved in the training inadvertently left the explosive material on the bus. What? So when the students returned from the break, this is Monday and Tuesday, the bus transported 26 students from two elementary schools as well as a high school, made eight runs, logging about 145 miles. It wasn't until Wednesday that a maintenance worker doing a routine check discovers the explosive material hidden in the bus's engine compartment. That is when Loudoun County Fire Marshal, the Sheriff's Office, was notified as well as the CIA. An email goes out to the parents and the staff members last night stating that this explosive training material was, quote, in a benign state and should (laughs) not be activated through normal operation of the bus. Just (laughs) one. Okay. And the state that it's in... You'd have to have a blasting cap or something to actually make it explode. That is a district representative, by the way, not a CIA representative, of course, because they're not going to bother making a statement on camera. That was not the case. We partner with law enforcement to allow them to train, first of all, to get to know our schools in case we have an active shooter or some kind of emergency like that. So they partner with law enforcement and somehow partnering with law enforcement to give them training in case they have an active shooter situation. Somehow we go from that to CIA putting ex- explosives on buses. How, how does that... America, I mean, what the... So, Pam, they're trying to put everybody at ease. The CIA releasing this statement today saying to prevent such incidents from happening again, Uh CIA has taken immediate steps to strengthen inventory and control procedures in its canine program. CIA will also conduct a thorough and independent review of CIA's canine training program. It has performed a full inventory this morning and accounted for all the explosive training material 
used. Wow. I, I imagine that was a big shock to the parents, but glad everyone is okay in this uh, situation. Susan, can you imagine that? <laughs> no. And that the, the inspector who <laughs> was looking at the bus finding explosive material. It, just an incredible story. I have to be honest, when I first heard it, I said, was this an April Fool's? Nope. Nope, it's not. Yeah. You're telling me the uh, CIA couldn't afford to buy their own bus? Maybe even a used one. Does it even need to run if you're just sniffing, if the dog's just sniffing the bus? Why a real bus that has kids on it? How do you leave explosives behind, even if they're inert explosives? It just boggles the mind. And going from, we partner with law enforcement so they're familiar with our layout, to the CIA planting bombs on buses... I guess it's so that way. So, the, so the, my only conclusion there would be that the CIA has partnered with law enforcement for training exercises, which sounds a lot like domestic operations, which I don't think they're supposed to be. T- I don't understand. Maybe you do. Go over to unfiltered.reddit.com. Clue me in. Give me a link to something that explains what the hell's going on there. If you've heard anything or any stories about the Panama Papers or any kind of interesting tidbits throughout the week, any topics really, submit at unfiltered.reddit.com. That community over there will vote them up. Don't forget, if you are a patron, we got extra exclusive clips. And the overtime segment is coming up. Now, check out the calendar at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar because, like, I've been foreshadowing. I have no idea how this rest of this month is going. I'm hoping we'll be back next week at our regular time. Everything is sort of planned for it. But uh, just check the calendar over jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. We'll be updating you there. And if we do have our regular time, we'll have our new reveal, which I'm pretty excited about. We've been working on it behind the scenes. So thank you for tuning in this week's episode of the Unfiltered program. Don't forget, patreon.com slash unfiltered if you want to support us. You go to broadcasting.com slash contact if you want to email us. We'll see you back here next week. Overtime. I can't quit you, unfiltered audience. I need you. And you need these clips in your ear organs. That's right. Fire up the overtime. Okay, live stream, you guys go vote over at jbtitles.com while I play a little clip or two for the overtime segment. But first, I want to thank our new patrons that signed up since last week. A big thank you to Sebastian, Tom, Kiefer, Kyle, Admiral Toasty, and Greg. You guys signed up this last week and are our official sponsors of the overtime segment. Thank you for being involved with our show. Thank you for being part of making our show great. Speaking of audience involvement, we have an email that came into the show four days ago, and special email correspondent Angela is on the phone to cover it for us. Hey, Andrews. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> I would like to just 
<laughs> read uh, this. I just it put such a big smile on my face over the weekend to read this. Okay. The subject, the subject line is from Jacob. Jacob writes to the brilliant facade bashing duo known as Chris Fisher and Chase Noonan. The message. Get ready for this. I'm ready. This is what this is what Jacob says. He says, "You guys are methodically untwisting the war machine's disgusting, convoluted narrative in a way I haven't heard anywhere." I started listening a few weeks ago, and I am absolutely hooked. Whether it's the TPP or mass surveillance or the military-industrial complex, the CIA, the phony war against ISIL, I mean ISIS, I mean... Dash. Or, uh, oh, Dash, okay. Or anything, you knew I was going to say that wrong, thanks. <laughs> or anything about the dastardly intentions of our so-called, quote, elected, unquote, officials. You guys nail it every time. Week by week, you dismantle the shit show of an election in a way that no other media outlet can or will. What you are doing is extremely important, and as this government brings us closer to the brink, unfiltered significance and influence will undoubtedly grow. I am waiting for a new card, but as soon as it gets here, I will be your newest supporter. Thank you so much for all the hard work you guys put in. It is appreciated more than words can say. Keep fighting the good fight. Hey, that's awesome. All right. Cool. Well, thank you, Angela, for calling in with that on-the-scene report from a uh, unfiltered contact over at the uh, contact form. And, of course, also monitoring the Patreon feed at patreon.com slash unfilter. All right, Andrews, have a good rest of your evening. We'll talk to you later. Okay, thanks. Now we have some cyber to get into. As always, we got to start off the overtime with a little cyber. A little cyber for you in the overtime. We have been reporting on more hackers using ransomware to hold computer files hostage for money. Ooh, I think this is an interesting topic that they have been following. And uh, we, of course, have been following it on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network for a very, very long time. And uh, it has really gotten hold with Bitcoin. It's really that, – that is, that is like peanut butter and chocolate. And they are loving it. And it's interesting to see the CBS Morning News with uh, your Charlie Rose there. Uh, really kind of uh, focusing on this so much. And uh, I say we sit back and evaluate their coverage. I invite you to enjoy. In February, Los Angeles Hospital paid about $17,000 worth of bitcoins after a data breach. Since then, several other medical institutions were crippled by ransomware, forcing them to turn away patients. Marco Morgan shows us how cyber thieves are raising the stakes. Marco, good morning. Good morning, Charlie. Hackers are using ransomware to target everyone from consumers to businesses big and small to municipalities. And the payoff is huge. Now, we visited a city that fell victim to hackers and is still working to get its files back. Plainfield, New Jersey, a town of roughly 50,000 people, was taken hostage. The hijacker has requested or demanded a ransom. Mayor Adrian Mapp says hackers infiltrated their computer systems when an employee clicked on an infected link. City officials scrambled to pull servers offline, but three were compromised, leaving emails and other city files inaccessible. We have about 10 years of documents that we are not able to access. The hijackers held the files ransom, demanding roughly 650 euros paid in Bitcoin. Map sought the assistance from law enforcement, but remains helpless in regaining access. It's just a very serious problem that cries out for a solution, and we don't have it at the local level. Plainfield was a victim of ransomware, a type of malware that cybersecurity experts and law enforcement officials say is spreading nationwide. Who should be concerned? 
everyone should be concerned. It's the number one issue facing the computer security industry, and it's a very, very difficult thing to solve. Whoa! Wait a minute. Hold on. This is a whole new kind of cyber. So this is our number one cyber now? Is this? Okay. Wait, wait. What? Really? Ransomware? There's what? Okay, ransomware? Really? Now aware that cybersecurity okay. experts and law enforcement now, hold officials on. say I want to make sure I got this right. Uh huh. Who should be concerned? Okay, everyone should be concerned. It's what? the number one issue facing the computer security industry, and it's a very, very difficult thing to solve. Ryan, the rain. It's simple to solve. Hold on, hold on a second here. Let me turn on the camera. Here, I'm going to pick up the mic. I'm sorry about this. It's going to be a little loud. I got to pick up the microphone here. I want to look. I want you to look in, look into your screen if you're watching this. I'm going to look into the camera. Here's your here's your solution for ransomware. Are you ready? Back up, back up. There you go. I just solved your ransomware problem, everybody. Everybody, I just solved your ransomware problem. You're welcome. There, we continue on. I apologize. This is ridiculous. This is this is really this is really a level of hype. You should be concerned. Everyone should be concerned. It's the number one issue facing the computer security industry, and it's a very, very difficult thing to solve. Ryan Narain, director of cybersecurity firm Kaspersky Lab, says the malware gets into people's computers often with a simple click. They prey on end users' willingness to click on the latest viral videos. They prey on uh, people's willingness to click on uh, Facebook links. Uh, they're even sending spam through email in addition to using Twitter. You know, the same techniques we use to get people to click our headlines. Once a computer is infected, it encrypts all files or locks the user out until they pay for the key. We have a documents folder here. He demonstrated just how it works. I have a music folder here. I also have, uh, like everyone's computers, it's full of photos. In many cases, people's uh, family photos. Then the malware takes hold. The ransomware is communicating with a server. The server is sending instructions here to start encrypting all these files. In just minutes, the computer is compromised. This is what the end users see when the machine is now running. Compromised because he intentionally clicked an executable. This machine is now a part of the ransomware attack. And those photos? If I try to look at my uh, all my photos from my last vacation, try to open this, it's nothing. It's garbage. Imagine an average business. This happening in the background, not only on this computer, but but All encrypting every computer within the network at the same time. In addition to a string of hospitals hacked, the village of Ilion, New York, paid hundreds in ransom in 2014, and the police department in Melrose, Massachusetts, paid nearly $500 to get back online. We are seeing an uptick in the, this type of activity. Ari Maharis heads the FBI's New York Cyber Division. One of the reasons our numbers are growing is because the idea that people are paying the ransom. In 2014, the FBI received more than 1,800 complaints about ransomware. The FBI tells people to pay the ransom, by the way. So this kind of interesting little fact there. They tell them, go ahead. Yeah, you got to pay. You should do it. An estimated loss of more than $23 million. In 2015, the Bureau received over 2,400 complaints. and Victims lost over $24 million. These are just the cases that are being reported. We suspect that there are many more out there that haven't been. The ransom demands are often relatively small, hundreds to a few thousand dollars. But the loss to an individual or business can be huge. It's a very, very helpless feeling to open your computer and you don't have your computer anymore. How can you protect yourself? Good user habits, uh, common sense, backups and patching. With with those basic things in place, I think you you can minimize your exposure to risk. Now, the hackers keep the ransom demands fairly small because the victims are more willing to pay. 
Mayor Mapp did not pay, but he told us that the hackers have disappeared, leaving the city with no one to contact him. They could even pay the ransom if they wanted to. But the bottom line, guys, you got to back up your files. It can happen Good. to you. Good, yes. the hospital in Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. You know what? That serious issue these days. Mm-hmm. Even with all the fear-mongering? damage so quickly and so easily. That's what's so scary to me. In a matter of seconds. Mm-hmm. DeMarco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, DeMarco. DeMarco. Uh, okay, then they do more fear-mongering. <laughs> I was about to say... Despite the fear-mongering, at least they got a really good message there in the end. But then they did a lot of fear-mongering. And I was kind of like, I don't really want to say that was a good coverage now. <laughs> like, I was kind of wanting to say, like, all right, good guys. Good guys. You did that right. Uh, so, you know, I was just watching that. You know, I don't, I'm not saying I'm old. People hate it when I say I'm old because uh, there's people, obviously, listening that are older than me. That's how the Internet works. And there's people listening, obviously, that are younger than me. That's also how the Internet works. So I don't I won't I won't come on here and say I'm old. But listening to that clip, it did remind me of what I think people would agree is legitimately old television series. The Computer Chronicles back from the 80s. You guys remember this one, right? They had an episode on computer viruses that was the big threat. And I'm wondering if I could find it. I wonder, yes. In fact, I just found it. Look at that. Boy, now that is a system. Oh, oh, you know what? I'll have to, maybe if I copy it locally. Yeah, we have it up on the system, so I will go copy it locally. This is, uh, this is, this is a, this is a classic. No, no. Well, I teased, but I don't, I don't think I have it for you. Well, I could try one more. There we go. Bob's your uncle. I got it. All right. It's coming down. I got to play this for you. So, so ransomware, it's the largest threat that we've ever faced, right? That's what he said. Ransomware, it's a huge threat. So I'm, I'm bear with me here as I pull up this clip uh, from Computer Chronicles in uh, January 17th, 1989. The Computer Chronicles was on the air. It was a, it was a show I loved. Computer Chronicles. And so in the Computer Chronicles, they did a piece about uh, viruses. Just for demo purposes. Just for demo purposes. A dumb demo virus. A dumb demo demo virus. This is a clean directory on a a PC, and uh, all these programs are perfectly good. If I was to run WordStar, for example, and here it is, and it's fine, it's just great, no problem at all. So I'll leave WordStar, and... um, then I'll run this virus program. So you're going to load the virus. I'm going to call virus up and say, hello, be virus. And he says, all comp files on this disk will be infected, which no self-respecting <laughs> virus would do. And you are warned, ha-ha, and so on. So now, we know we now have an infected situation. We know it. And in fact, if I was careful and I was looking at my disk in this case, I would find out that these programs are infected. But again, a self-respecting virus wouldn't even go and change the directory. You would yeah. not even know it was there. So, for example, you see different dates and, if you're really careful, different file sizes. Exactly. So they're looking at this as like it's a, this is when it was a big threat. And when I leave WordStar, it will be... All the files no, are that's, there. That's detect- so this uh, is this is when computer viruses were a big deal. On her home computer, little did she know the next morning that same innocent-looking disk was coming back to work infected with a data-killing virus. The virus would come to be called by the name of the day it struck, Friday the 13th. I thought I had a, a hard disk crash at first, but after I. Um, delved into it a little bit, I found that the disk was fine, mechanically it was fine, but there was no software in there. The, uh, the boot tracks were gone, the system tracks were gone, the uh, file allocation table was gone, it was just scrambled, it was still there. 
So you get my point. How about that? Come on, give me credit. I'm doing all. I'm mixing all that live on the fly. I went and pulled that clip up from 1980. Now, of course, I love those, so I have them here on the NAS. But you got to give me credit for a little bit of live mixing while we're doing the show to give you context of how long the media has been hyping this particular problem. Back up. Remember how we were just talking about the CIA and putting bombs on buses during spring break? Ah, fond memories of the Unfilter show. Speaking of the CIA... Moving on now is taking naked photographs of prisoners before sending them to torture, torture itself. It's a question being raised now that a U.S. official is coming out to say the CIA took naked photographs of detainees post-9-11 and kept them. According to The Guardian, which uncovered the story, some of these classified photos show captives blindfolded, bruised, and bound. I'm joined now by John Kariaku, the former CIA analyst who served two years in prison for blowing the whistle on the CIA's use of waterboarding. John, really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. You knew the CIA used waterboarding as a torture technique. Did you know about these photographs? No, I, I did not know about these photographs. And this is an important point, I think. This program was so, apparently, so tightly controlled and, and closely held that virtually nobody inside the building knew about it. So what is the purpose of photographing these captives naked? Is it purely sexual humiliation? Is it a, a technique to make them feel vulnerable or uncomfortable? Or is this a is this about processing detainees? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Officially, it appears to be about processing. It appears to be so that the CIA has a record that these detainees were not tortured before being sent to countries where they later were tortured. Hmm. But at the same time, it's illegal to take naked photographs of of people in detention. It's a violation of the Geneva Convention, and there are international laws um, negotiated at the United Nations that specifically prohibit this kind of behavior. So this this could even rise to the level of, of a war crime. Hmm. I doubt I'll ever get to that level. What is your bet? What's your bet? Now, moving right along, I do have a little terrorism update for you. Check this out. This is a special piece that Fox News is putting together just for uh, their audience, I'm sure. Not by any, no other outside motivation. Not this high production piece. No ulterior motive here. Fox News reporting. Rising threats, shrinking military. Rising threats, shrinking military. Um, I'm not, you know what? You don't even need me to go into the seven nation rant. You don't need, you don't even need me to go into this. You don't, you don't even need me to mention that we have over 600 military bases around the world and essentially have a military presence in every country. You don't need me to mention how much money that takes to run just that presence, let alone all our activities all around the world and our constant secret expansion into Africa and our continuous bumbling in the Middle East. You don't need me to tell you about all of our programs deep in the sea and up in space. You don't need me to tell you about that, but we have a shrinking military. Military. We got to fix the military, and there's only one man who can investigate. Here's Brett Baird. The Iwo Jima Memorial reminds us of many things. First, of course, of the uncommon valor of our troops. But it also reminds us that it can be a dangerous world out there, and our military never knows when it will be called upon to travel overseas and accomplish a mission. And it can remind us as well that as much as we may desire peace, there's no replacement for a military that is strong and ready. There is no, yeah, no. You might want peace, but you got to admit every now and then we got to kick ass. That's a, You might want peace, but you admit we got to be able to kick some butt. There might be nerds out there. I mean, what? 
that as much as we may desire peace, there's no replacement for a military that is strong and ready. Let us pray. Eternal Father, strong to save. As we bid fair winds and following seas to the fighting 56. September 2015, we're witnessing a military funeral, not of a person, but a Navy frigate. The USS Simpson is being decommissioned. I wonder if Brett just felt personally compelled to do this story or if it was suggested to him. I wonder where this story originated from. Uh, I almost feel compelled to put a link to go sign up to the military in the show notes after watching this piece. But a Navy frigate, the USS Simpson, is being decommissioned. There's a feeling of sadness to say goodbye to a ship that has been as important uh, to our profession as all the rest that have gone before her. The Simpson was the last U.S. warship to engage in ship-to-ship combat in 1988 during Operation Praying Mantis. Three Iranian naval vessels and at least two small boats were sunk or very severely damaged. They must know that we will protect our ships, and if they threaten us, they'll pay a price. Not that long ago, the Navy had many of this class of frigate. Now they're all decommissioned. It's like it's a different era. It's not just the Navy that's saying goodbye to old friends. In March 2014, the Army bid farewell to the Kiowa Warrior Helicopter, a workhorse of their air cavalry in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah they're talking about the ones with horses. Um, you know, we get emails, private, we, you know, when you send in an email to the show, you can mark it as private. Uh, and for a while, I was taking emails over BitMessage. And I still have means of GPG that I can – people, have, if, they, if they need to, we can go over. And there's one thing that I've gotten from people who uh, have been in the military is you, you – not only do we get, generally get it right, but we maybe don't go far enough. And when it comes to spending, I look at this and I think it's not, it's not even a question of how much money we're spending. Uh, for me, it's hard to quantify how much $600 billion really – it's hard for me to really quantify that. Um, and I'm sure that's not the real number. It's more of a question about how are we spending that money? What are we spending it on? What are we doing? What programs? What resources are we spending it on? Do we need to have a? Do we need to have the, all these things? These pet projects that they're listing here. It's it's obvious that these are pet projects. Like the ones he's rattling off, they sound like they should be replaced. And maybe we should be investing in smarter technology and in our troops. And oh, I don't know, maybe the veterans and things like that. Like it seems like. In 2016, there, is, there has been a major shift in how we apply our power. And one of the things that's majorly shifted is we don't do massive deployments of troops and ships. We do trained rebels. We do CIA operatives. We do support training. We do guidance. People who are there just in a guidance factor, people who are there just to help a, a guidance role, not in, not a combat role. No, no, just an advisory role. You know, we do a lot of that. Or, you know, when we need to go build huts, when Ebola is breaking out in, in Africa, we'll send 3,000 troops at a time. But we don't do these huge rollouts anymore. We don't do – because, you know, no, nobody's going to go up against us anyways. What we do drone, right? We do that. We do that. Man, we do some of the best droning, don't we? We do great droning. We have, we, we do fight and we kill. We kill and we, 
ways we've never killed before in great quantities. Don't worry. We have plenty of ways to kill people. It's just you got to wonder, do we have to invest in all of these old ways of killing people when we don't really use them anymore? A warrior helicopter, a workhorse of their air cavalry in Iraq and Afghanistan. All the pilots will be gone, all the aircraft will be gone. It's only going to be in the history books that people are even know the role it played. That's how every industry is. In the Air Force, the president has capped the number of F-22 stealth fighters, far short of the number originally envisioned. Our budget is a zero-sum game, and if more money goes to F-22s, it is our troops and our citizens who lose. These actions reflect a trend. Numerous military programs have been scrapped, including the Combat Search and Rescue Helicopter, the Army's Future Combat Vehicle Program, the Navy's Next Generation Cruiser. They all, again, sound like absolute pet projects that were money sinkholes, don't they? All of them. Every single one of them. And several missile defense systems. <laughs> several. The third Sight Missile Defense Plan several. for Poland and the Czech Republic. Along with this downsizing is a major reduction in the troops themselves. For instance, the Army's active force is expected to drop to the smallest since before World War II, 450,000 soldiers. We've cut the military to its lowest levels, yet we are facing a world that is the most complex environment we have faced since at least the end of World War II. Retired three-star general Michael Flynn ran the Defense Intelligence Agency during the Obama administration. Frankly, the United States of America is... Uh, in a less strong position today because wow. of the readiness and the uh, size of our of our armed forces. This is right out of House of Cards. The, I mean, I don't mean to be so de diminutive to a real-world problem here, but this is really something. And the House of Cards was written – this latest season was written a while ago. It's really incredible. I spoke to Robert Gates, Secretary of Defense in the last years of the Bush administration and the early years of the Obama administration. He told me President Obama promised him there wouldn't be any significant changes in the military budget for a while. Overall, did he keep to his word? No. Well, I think that began to fray. Fray may be a gent too gentle a word. <laughs> Before too long, Gates found himself cutting hundreds of billions from the defense budget. And that was only the start. Gates was informed the president wanted to announce even more cuts. Over the last two years, Secretary Bob Gates has courageously taken on wasteful spending, saving $400 billion in current and future spending. It makes you kind of be very aware of uh, sort of who wags the tail at Fox News, right? Uh, and I've, I've, I have, this has been so clear to me as I've covered their uh, – you, whenever you see people really think – this is the interesting thing. People really think that Fox News is a right-wing – uh, news station, and predominantly they are, and especially their uh, their talk shows that they have in the evenings, like with O'Reilly and Megyn Kelly, and you know this guy Brett and all that. But um, their main news coverage, no, that that they're not Republican there necessarily. Their core news coverage, the core leaning of the corporation, I've always felt is pro military industrial complex. I, I imagine uh, I could picture. Um, John McCain casually strolling the halls of Fox News saying, hey, make sure we talk more about this. John McCain's always one of the first people they go to whenever there's a situation, whenever boots need to go on the ground. It's always they go to John McCain. They work with the industrial military complex to promote things like this. Taken on wasteful spending, 
saving $400 billion in current and future spending. And by attacking Obama today, you are preemptively attacking Hillary tomorrow because Hillary is now being positioned as the Obama legacy candidate. And the military-industrial complex knows that she's likely to continue his spending cuts or at least at least be less generous than, say, a, you know, a president who's going to make it great or somebody like Kasich. There's, there, or I really have no idea really what Cruz would do. Well, anyways, my, my point is, is that if they get somebody from the right, especially one that's establishment-based, maybe something like Paul Ryan, uh, I doubt it, but somebody like Paul Ryan, th- then the military is mu- in a much better position to negotiate for their budget. So by preemptively attacking Hillary and by attacking Obama today, they are marking his legacy with this. And then when Hillary comes along and she's the legacy queen, well, this will be a black mark. Not to have been punny about that. Sorry, I did not intend for that to... I believe we can do that again. What was your reaction? Well, I guess I'd have to say I felt double-crossed. After all those years in Washington, I was naive. To many, the cuts weren't about economic efficiency so much as a strategic change in the role of the military. You told President Obama's staffers that the defense cuts sent a big strategic message abroad. The United States is going home cut a deal with Iran and China while you can. I think overall it has had that impact. You're sending the message to the rest of the world that you're basically retreating. Later you meet with President Obama and you tell him the way you will compensate for forced cuts in the next war is with blood. More American kids will die because of our decision. Mm. What was his response to that? I think he music acknowledged it. What I was pitching at a minimum was the world doesn't seem to be getting better. Before you head down a path of deep cuts in defense, why don't you take it kind of slow? You know, it was one of those things where I lost the argument. It's interesting how he's... He sees the military actually as something that is more dangerous to the world. And I think that he looks at us... I actually do. I think that he looks at the United States military... And sees it as a as a threatening wow. uh, application around the world, then actually as a useful tool. How much more dangerous do you think the world is now than it was seven, eight years ago? I think more dangerous, far more dangerous. Far more dangerous. Wow, they really went after him there at the end. I, I don't even believe Gates either. That's the funny thing. I don't even buy that. I mean, I believe that Obama wants to... I mean, I just... Like, it all feels really strange and odd, so I wanted to share that with you because it struck me as as really odd. Also, just a quick note while we uh, keep going. Gitmo's got an update. Now, the Pentagon about to transfer more detainees out of Gitmo. At least two countries have agreed to take about a dozen more inmates. National security correspondent Jennifer Griffin. You don't need much more than that. This is something I want to start tracking right now. I want to. I don't. That last clip was pretty long, so I want to pick up the momentum. We'll keep moving because you guys got to go over to jbtitles.com and vote, and then we got to pick our titles. Have you voted? JBTitles.com! Come on, guys. It's the last thing we got to do before we get out of here, and I'm getting towards the end of the overtime because of the compact edition of the show. I do have an interesting 2016 update. So you may have heard this week, and I didn't, you know, really cover any 2016 in the main show. Uh, you may have heard that uh, 
Hillary was asked if she's been contacted by the FBI. I don't know if you heard this or not, but this is she released a statement. Her campaign released a statement saying she has not been contacted by the FBI. That would that no, no, we no, 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 we've not been contacted by the FBI. Well, actually, that's because they wouldn't be contacting her just yet, but they probably will be calling on her. Something something big has happened in the FBI investigation that I don't know if I well. I don't know if I could explain it as well as the judge could, so I'm going to bring in the judge. The evolution of the answer about email as this investigation continues. We're back with the panel. Judge, you wrote about this today. There are multiple reports, uh, not confirmed yet, that an interview will take place soon uh, with the FBI, and possibly they're coming to the end of this investigation. Uh, What do you think? I think that Mrs. Clinton is currently at the vortex of a perfect storm of legal misery. Her senior aides from her years as the Secretary of State, who are still very close to her, have been ordered to testify under oath in two Freedom of Information Act requests. In a discovery context, meaning the ability of the lawyer to ask questions is wide and broad, and there's no judge there to sustain uh, any objections. And two federal judges, one of whom appointed by her husband, uh, have both suggested there is likely evidence of a conspiracy in the office of the Secretary of State when she was there to evade and avoid uh, federal law. Add to that that in the very same week, the same people that are going to be examined in those two Freedom of Information Act cases are being called into the FBI and asked if they want to speak to the FBI. A very dangerous thing for any lawyer to allow his client to do. And after that, Mrs. Clinton will be called in. She's damned if she does, she's damned if she doesn't. If she goes in there, they will catch her in material misrepresentations because she's been making them for a year on this. If she doesn't go in there, she will defy her statement. I can't wait to talk to the FBI, which of course they disbelieve because nobody wants to talk to the FBI when you're the subject of one of their criminal investigations. Chuck, I mean, the political insiders here, the conventional wisdom is that it's just never going to happen. They're never going to indict her. But- Which I, I figure this is probably exactly what you're thinking right now. doesn't matter. They're, ne- they're never going to indict her. It's never going to happen. The wisdom is that it's just never going to happen. Yeah, they're never no, going to indict no, her. Never. But there is some doubt whether the FBI moves forward with a recommendation. Look, the, the, the whole thing boils down to the statutes that she might have violated that pertain to the handling of classified information. And the limiting factor that I have identified that seems to pr- argue that she would not be indicted is the very strong judge scienter requirement. This has to be knowing and willful criminal conduct. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that whatever she did wrong, she did knowingly and willfully. Well, oh, that one email where she says, take the headings but, off. And but the- but that, that, that does not involve um, I, the, I that does you. not involve the other elements of these offenses. Just let me finish the point. Sure. And they have prosecutorial discretion. The big difference here between Petraeus and Hillary is that when Petraeus was in the perjury trap, he lied to the FBI, which triggered the whole thing. She's, you're right, she's at risk in this perjury trap that she's in now and that could lead to a derivative charge but if it only focuses on just the business about the server I think what they're gonna come down with is a report that says she was very negligent she made a lot of bad decisions she risked a lot of things she shouldn't have but we couldn't prove this crime beyond this is this is a rare federal statute whether this is good or bad is another subject where the the person can be prosecuted for gross negligence the government does not have to show intent because it's espionage knowing and willful says right there in the statute. Can be proven by negligence in this particular statute. The ultimate irony is that the reason she embarked on all this was to hide her communications from the world, 
from the, the, the Freedom of Information Act from the Congress. That was the point. There's no other point in doing this. It's meant to evade subpoenas, inquiries, congressional uh, committees. And now it's all over the world. I mean, everything is out there. We know that 22 of these were high, extremely high, uh, highly secret. Uh, and it's, look, it's, it's a perfect, the word condign was invented for this kind of uh, retribution. This is condign punishment. You want to hide your, your official acts in a way that nobody else has, nobody else would try to. You're going to be exposed to the world. I think she gets either indicted or there's a criminal referral uh, somehow squashed by the higher-ups. I can't see her getting away from this with nothing. State Department's redacted and declared 2,101 work emails classified at this moment, at least at the confidential level. 44 classified as secret, 22, as you mentioned, classified as top secret. The two people uh, involved in this most now are the FBI Director Jim Comey mm. and the Attorney General Loretta Lynch. And when we talked to her, she said this is going apace. Uh, she would not answer whether she's the ultimate decider, but I assume she is. It would be highly unusual for Jim Comey to conduct the interrogation himself, but I wouldn't put it past him because he's a detail-oriented guy who's been receiving daily reports on this hmm. since they started the investigation a year ago. Daily reports, huh? Busy man with daily reports. find that to be also rather interesting. That brings us to the end of the Unfiltered Overtime. All right, let's go over to the JB titles now. And, oh, I don't want to get this pulled out. I don't think I can play that, but I could play this. We have ourselves a title, ladies and gentlemen, the Panama Money Train. With uh, It's actually pretty widespread tonight, but with six boats, I think we'll give it to Panama Money Train because otherwise the spread is pretty far. And the next closest one, the Panama Cabal, <laughs> which is really good, too, is uh, number four. But I like the Money Train. That's pretty good. JBTitles.com, last chance to vote. But I think the Panama Money Train is our winner this week. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Show. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm getting out of here. See you later.